Why don't we give a hand clap of praise to the Lord if you think he's worthy this morning? Come on, has he been good to you? That song said, I am so blessed, my soul has found rest. How many know in this place you can still find rest when you call on that name, amen? I certainly want to take a moment and give honor to our pastor as Brother Fry and Brother Wendell Evans have said, he's ministering in California. Um, you know, uh, I, I don't know how many in this place are really familiar with the, the circumstances by which I came to Anderson, but I'll tell you that I never believed. For those of you who are in morning class, you know this right here is a struggle for me. The one-handed bottle open doesn't work for me. God bless the men of God who can do that. I need to go to the gym. Come on, you can laugh, it's all right. The circumstances by which I came to Anderson, you know, um, this isn't my pulpit. Uh, never felt like it was. To be honest, when I came to Anderson, I, I told Pastor St. Clair and Bishop, you know, if, if I never preach, if I never teach, never do music, um, I would still call Anderson home because... The Spirit of God is here. There's favor on this church. And so as the months went by and I began to be involved in things, I was just reflecting on it yesterday. And, you know, um, I can still say with all assurance if Pastor called me today and said, that's it, don't, don't need you in the pulpit anymore. We've got, we've got the people we need. I would still call Anderson home uh, because I'm not here to minister in a pulpit. I'm not here to play music. Um, I'm here because I want to be saved, and I believe that God is in this place. I believe God works in this church in ways that, I'm sorry, he doesn't work in every other church. You know, not every church lets God work the way that this church allows God to work, and so I'm, I'm so thankful. I want to give honor to him, our bishop, who's ministering in Wabash, of course, and Bishop Bingham. We're going to hear Brother Miller tonight. I'm excited for that. Um, we just are so blessed in this church. We truly are. Happy birthday to the church of the living God. I don't know if you knew it, but today, 1,986 years ago, Brother Fry and I did the math before church, 1,986 years ago today in an upper room, the church was born in an upper room in prayer. I've said it so many times in our morning class, but can I tell you that the church did not begin in 1903 in Azusa Street. Pentecost didn't begin in 1901 in Topeka, Kansas. It didn't begin on 1517 on a door in Wittenberg, Germany. Didn't begin at 381 at a Council of Constantinople or 325 at Nicaea. The Church of the Living God was born in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. The Bible tells us that when they were all gathered together in one accord and in one place, suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled the house where they were sitting. Aren't you thankful to know that your roots don't run anywhere else but to the holy city? Your roots run to Jerusalem, amen? I put a, a poll on Instagram recently. I asked if anybody could tell me what the Feast of Weeks was. Of the 70 or something people that responded, I think nine knew that the Feast of Weeks is Pentecost. You know, I feel you can maybe make an argument for Passover, but other than that, this ought to be regarded as the holiest day of the year to the church. 
You know, we celebrate Christmas and we celebrate uh, Easter and all of these things, and that's all fine, and we should do those things. But can I tell you that uh, the holiest day of the year, in my mind, is the day when God decided to tabernacle among his people, when he decided to fill us with the gift of the Holy Ghost. We were changed forevermore after that day. Before that day, you were still lost in sin. Before that day, you still had no hope. Before that day, you weren't redeemed. But when he poured out his spirit on the day of Pentecost, you could say, I'm one of his children now. I've been bought with a price. I've been redeemed. Amen? This morning, of course, as I was reflecting on Pentecost Sunday, on the day of Pentecost, my mind went to Jeremiah chapter number 31, and that's where I'm going to begin this morning. Jeremiah chapter number 31 and verse 33. Jeremiah 31 and 33. The Bible says this. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts. I'm going to write my law on their hearts. I'll write it in their hearts. I'll be their God and they shall be my people. In verse 34, and they shall teach no more. Every man his neighbor, every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. How many are thankful for this next part? From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. And I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The day when I write my law on their hearts, I'm going to blot out their sin from the book forevermore. Their sins are going to be washed white as snow when I write my law on their hearts. This morning, for just a little while, I want to preach to you this thought from Passover to Pentecost. From Passover to Pentecost. Why don't you set your Bibles down, your iPhones, whatever you're using. Let's ask God to anoint the remainder of this service. God, we are so thankful for the word that we've already heard this morning. God, we're so thankful, God, that you've met us in worship. God, you've, you've been among us. God, you met us here last night in prayer. God, you've been among us today, God. But we know, God, you're not through yet. We're here to hear your word, God. We don't want it just to fall on stony ground. I don't want to leave this place the way I came in, God. But I want to be changed from the inside out, God. I want to take the word that I hear today out into a lost and dying world. And I'm praying, God, that you would permeate every mind and every heart. And we'll give you all the glory and all the honor for it in Jesus' name. Everybody said in Jesus' name. Clap your hands to the Lord and then you can be seated. The Feast of Pentecost celebrates the giving of the law to God's people. Beginning last night, the first day of Pentecost began. The day of Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost, is a time when God's people remember His law. Leviticus 23 and 15 gives the command, You shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Even unto the morrow after the seventh Sabbath shall you number 50 days, and you shall offer a new meat offering unto the Lord. God speaks to his people through Moses, and he says, You're going to count from Passover 50 days. And at the end of those 50 days, you're going to make an offering. 
What many people don't understand about the Feast of Pentecost is that the Feast of Pentecost is preceded by 49 days of mourning. For the 49 days leading up to the first day of Pentecost, Jewish men cease from cutting their hair. No weddings are celebrated during this time. Immediately following the Passover, the 50 days before Pentecost begins the time of unleavened bread as well. It is not a time of celebration, but it's a time of solemnity and sobriety. You see, while the Passover celebrates the Israelites' deliverance from Egypt, what many fail to appreciate are the many hardships and struggles that they faced on their journey toward Mount Sinai. You see, the time in between Passover and Pentecost is a time to reflect on where God has brought you from. It's a time to remember the destruction that happened in Egypt. It's a time to remember the bitter waters at Merah. It's a time to remember the Red Sea. It's a time to think on the wilderness. See, in the days leading up to Pentecost, it was a time of celebration for God's people. Yes, but it was not a celebration of where God had brought them to. But it was a time to remember what God had brought them out of. The time of Pentecost is a time to reflect on where God has brought you from. The days between the Passover, the days between Easter and Pentecost, those are the days that God's people sit and reflect on how when we tried to cross over the Red Sea and Pharaoh was at our back, that God opened the waters and he allowed us to cross on dry ground and he destroyed our enemies in front of our eyes. It's a, it's a time to remember that although the wilderness was hard and although the wilderness seemed like it was going to destroy us when we came to bitter waters at Merah, he turned the waters sweet. It's a time to remember that when we could have uh, faced war against the enemies of God's people, when the Amalekites sought to destroy us, that God preserved us from war in the wilderness. It's a time to remember where God has brought you from. Can I tell you that although the time before Pentecost is a time to remember deliverance, it's a time of mourning because deliverance doesn't always feel like deliverance. God's provision and God's favor in your life doesn't always feel like deliverance. In fact, sometimes it feels like a wilderness. Sometimes it feels like God brought you out of Egypt just to leave you to die. But can I tell you, he didn't leave you to die. Just as the children of Israel could say, God has brought us out with a mighty hand that he has fulfilled his promise. The church of the living God today can stand up and celebrate that while we were dead in our sins and when we were wandering aimlessly in a wilderness, God didn't leave us in a wilderness. He didn't leave me to die in Egypt. He didn't leave me to die in a wilderness, but he brought me out in order that he could bring me in. And as the generations passed, the Israelites continued to celebrate the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. They celebrated the fact that although they had come out of bondage and although they had been through a wilderness, God's word came unto his people. They celebrate the time at Mount Sinai when God began to write his law on tablets of stone with his finger. They celebrate the time that God spoke to them year after year. They celebrate, they gather together with offerings unto the Lord, commemorating the day in which God himself wrote his commandments on tables of stone. Each year they would gather together and remember their deliverance from Egypt at the Passover. Each year they would gather together and remember the wilderness in the time of unleavened bread. And each year they would gather together in mourning with a sober spirit, acknowledging the place which God had brought them out of. 
It was a time to consider what the Lord had done. Before Pentecost, before the Spirit was poured out, if I can say it that way, before the law was ever given, it was a time to think on the things of God. But as the generations begin to pass, eventually God's people begin to drift further and further away from that law. Year after year, they came together with offerings and sacrifices. But year after year, they begin to put away the law of God. They begin to forget His commandments. They begin to forget what God had spoken to them. Sadly, it was not long before the celebration became little more than a custom and a ritual in the hearts of the people. Eventually, the meaning of the holiday was no longer found in acknowledging the day in which God's word was given unto them, but it simply became about more offerings and more sacrifices. As generations of prophets began to rise in Israel, warning the people of the folly which awaited them as they drifted further from the Lord, the grace of God was extended one more time. God began to speak through his prophets about a day in which he would write his law again, Brother Miller. Generation after generation in Israel had begun to drift further from his commandments. They would come together on Pentecost and they would give offerings and they would give sacrifices and they would go through the motions, and I know none of us here can relate to that, but they would come together and they would go through the motions of a worship service and they would go through the motions of a sacrifice, but they forgot his law. They begin to forget what God had spoken unto them. But God extends a hand of mercy. And he says, I'm going to give them my word one more time. But this time, I'm not going to write it on tables of stone. The book of Jeremiah chapter 31 and 33, we opened with, it said this. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law this time in their inward parts. I'm going to write it in their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. You need to understand who Jeremiah was. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. Jeremiah was the prophet who promised the exile. He was the Babylon generation prophet. He was the one who had to tell Israel, you're going into exile. But even in the midst of their exile, even in the midst of their disobedience, even in the midst of their curse, even in the midst of their sin, God said, I'm not going to leave them in that sin. But one more time, I'm going to promise them a word. One more time, I'm going to come unto them. But this time, I'm not going to write it on tables of stone. There is coming a day when I'm going to deliver them out of the hand of their enemies one more time, but this time it will be forevermore. The next time I write my law, it's going to be on their hearts. The next time I give them my word, it's going to be an everlasting word. It's going to be an ever abiding word. It's going to be a never ending word. How many in this place are thankful that you have the never ending word living on the inside of you? John chapter one and verse one said it this way. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word in verse 14 was made flesh he dwelled among us and we beheld his glory the glory is of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth he gave his word one more time Ezekiel 36 and 26 speaks of this day as well he says a new heart also will I give you a new spirit will I put within you and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you A heart of flesh. 36 and 27. 
and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You shall keep my judgments and do them. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. He says, there is going to come a day when I'm going to put my spirit inside of my people. And that spirit is going to be an ever-abiding law that's going to teach them my judgments. It's going to teach them how to live holy. It's going gonna, it's gonna to teach them how to live righteous. It's going to bring my people back into fellowship with me. The Lord promised that the day would come when his law would be forever settled in the hearts of his people. But when the law came for the last time, it would not come on tablets or on parchment written down. It would be forever settled. You know, in Christianity today, it seems like the word law has received a bad reputation. It invokes negative perceptions of someone's faith. But can I tell you that if you haven't received the law of God written on your heart, you're none of his. The law of God is not something that died at the cross. The law of of God is something that was given unto you because of the cross. I'm going to say that one more time. In your life as a Book of Acts Christian, as an apostolic Pentecostal, saved by grace through faith. Yes, even saved by grace through faith. You still need the law of God written on your heart. And if he hasn't written his law on your heart, then your name's not in the book. And can I tell you that if your name is not in the book, then all of it was in vain. It didn't matter how many offerings you brought to God. It doesn't really matter how many times you came and offered lip service. It doesn't really matter how many times you came and offered worship. If you haven't received his law on your hearts, you're none of his. He promised that it was coming. It's coming. It's coming. If any man have not the spirit of Christ, he's none of his. Jesus said it like this, unless a man be born again of water and of the spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God and he sure can't enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because the Holy Ghost is Christ in us. It's the hope of glory. If I had hope in this life only, Brother Miller, I would be of all men most miserable. But because his word came and dwelt among us and because he died on a cross and because his spirit was poured out, I can say his law is living on the inside of me now. And because of his law, I have a hope one day in glory. I have a hope one day that I'm going to be delivered forevermore. There's not going to be any more waiting around wondering, when is God going to save me from my distress? There is coming a day when one, once and for all I will be delivered. Romans chapter number 8 and verse 1. Romans chapter number 8 and verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. There's two laws, church, and they're both ever abiding. And if you don't have the second law, you're condemned by the first one. Until you've had his law written on your hearts... There's a law that hangs over your head that no man can overcome. It's the law of sin, and it's the law of death. He says, if you've received his spirit, verse number three. 
For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Verse 4. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in who? In us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the, after the spirit. I got thinking about the significance of this to the church today. On the day of Pentecost, what we call the day of Pentecost, the first day of the feast, which is today. I got reading this week and I found something really interesting. <clears throat> the first day of Pentecost, in the, in the tradition of the feast of Pentecost, is called the day of Tikkun. Tikkun Olam in Hebrew means perfection or sanctification of the world. So Tikkun is perfection or sanctification. I got thinking about this, you know, when the apostles gathered together in the book of Acts, if you count the days just right, you'll find that after the crucifixion, Jesus was dead three days, three nights, he rises. He ministers unto them throughout the duration of the rest of his time on earth, and then he ascends, and then he says, go and wait for the promise. He says, go and tarry ten days. And as I, begun, as I begin to count the days of just when was the Spirit poured out, just when was the Holy Ghost finally given, I realized that the first day of Tikkun, which means sanctification, or perfection, is called that because it's on that day that mourning ends. It's on that day that sadness ends. It's on that day that the Jews who have for 49 days not cut their hair, not given in marriage, eaten unleavened bread, it's during that day, on the day of Tikkun, on the day of sanctification, that they celebrate once more. That they get up in the morning and say, this is the day that the Lord has made, and I will rejoice and be glad in it. It's on that day, the first day of Pentecost. If you were to open your Bible and you were to read in the book of Acts chapter number 2, you would find that it was on the first day of Pentecost as the disciples were gathered together in an upper room. It was on the first day that sanctification took place. I can imagine the disciples sitting together in the upper room after 10 days of tarrying. Can you imagine with me for just a moment? Think about the 49 days leading up to that day. They had seen their Savior crucified. They'd seen him buried. You talk about solemnity. You believed he was coming to be your Savior, and he dies on a cross instead. Then they see him resurrected, and they're in wonder. But the sadness in their hearts to find out that he's not staying with them, and he ascends into heaven. He says, go and wait for the promise which I will send. And so they gather together in an upper room, and I can imagine one day goes by. Is he coming? Two days go by. Is he coming? Three days. Four days. Five days. Six days. Now we think about it, and we're like, well, they just tarried for ten days. When is the last time you tarried for ten days in one room in prayer? You start to, you start to wonder in your head... Imagine sitting, tarrying for 10 days, praying with somebody to receive the Holy Ghost, Brother Miller. After how long do you just say, they ain't going to get it? 
Imagine praying with somebody, laying hands on him for 10 days, praying for a healing that a healing didn't come. One day, two days, three days. After nine days, what are you saying? Look, I'll just be honest with you. I'm not sure. I think after, I think after a couple of hours, we start to think maybe it's, maybe it's just not the will of God. Maybe it's just not what God really wants. And I can imagine the disciples sitting together and saying, did we miss it? You know, he promised us that he was going to send the comforter. He promised us he was going to save us. Days have went by. Hundreds of people begin to leave. Of all those that had gathered together, one by one they begin to walk out the door. I can imagine Peter, I can imagine the disciples saying, just wait. Just wait, he's coming. He's coming. And they begin to shake their heads and say, this isn't it. And they walk out the door one by one. Over 300 leave that room. There's 120 left in the room, and I can imagine they begin to look at each other. And they begin to be very solemn. They begin to be very distressed, wondering if they missed God. But on the 50th day, I can imagine Peter looking to James and saying, You know what today is? James is hungry. He's been praying for 10 days. He's sweating. He's tired. He looks at Peter. He says, what's today? He said, Peter, I can imagine Peter looks back at him. He says, you know, we've been up here 10 days. We completely forgot. Today's tikkun. Today's our day of sanctification. This is, this is it. Today's the day of Pentecost. I imagine James looking at him, so what? Who cares? Peter looks back at him. He says, you know, we've been up here for a few days. We've seen an awful lot of things in the last 50 days. James, you know what I think we should do? I think we should just celebrate a little while. James looks back at him. What are you talking about? Today's the day of Pentecost, James. You know, we've been in mourning for 49 days. I think it would just be something if we just linked together right now and begin to celebrate. We begin to shout, begin to praise God. Because this is the day we remember that he brought us out of Egypt. This is the day we remember that he delivered us in the wilderness. Peter begins to look at him. He says, in his distress, he says, I'm going to celebrate anyway. And so they begin to pray. They begin to seek God on that 50th day. They begin to say to one another, uh, God, I'm so thankful you delivered me from the hand of Egypt. God, when I couldn't save myself, you saved me. God, when I couldn't deliver myself, you delivered me. And all of a sudden, the room begins to shake. All of a sudden, things begin to move, and somebody sees a cloud begin to appear above their heads and say, do you see that? Peter, did you see what just happened? And all of a sudden, it looks like fire begin to fill the room, and they look at each other and say, this is the day of sanctification. This is what he meant. This is the day that he writes our law. This is the day that he gives us his word. This is the day that I become the temple of the Holy Ghost. This is the day that I can celebrate and say, no more crying, no more pain, no more waiting on God. He's come to be with us. He's come to live inside of me today's the day he gives us beauty for ashes it's the day he turns our mourning into joy it's the day that weakness becomes strength it's the day that the lord has made and i will rejoice and be glad in it they begin to feel a change happen in the room what's happening what is this i believe the book of hebrews tells us exactly what was happening in that room that day hebrews chapter number 10 and verse 15 You see, I don't think it was necessarily obvious to the the disciples what was happening. They knew they were waiting on the promise from God. But I don't think they knew until it happened what was really going on. You see, they had heard the prophecies. I'm going to write my law upon your hearts. 
I'm going to give you my word one more time. I'm going to come and dwell inside you, and I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. What does that mean? Imagine yourself growing up as a child hearing those stories over and over. He's going to write his law in my heart. He's going to deliver me. He's going to give me his word. He's going to save us. Over and over and over as a child hearing that promise. And then as that room began to shake, I have to believe that maybe they begin to think something like this. Hebrews 10 and 15. Wherefore the Holy Ghost is also a witness to us. Why? For after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law into their hearts and in their minds will I write them. You know what I think the disciples begin to say to one another in the upper room? I've been in there. It's real crowded. I I can imagine shoulder to shoulder what they were saying to one another. You know what I think it was, Brother Jordan? This is that. That's what I think they were saying. I think they looked at one another and said that promise that Jeremiah wrote about. Do you remember when we were children and he told us he was going to write his law on our hearts? Do you remember when mom and dad used to drag us to the synagogue and say, one day you're going to be delivered. One day it's going to happen in your generation. You're going to be saved. One day in your generation, God's going to deliver you with a mighty hand. He's going to write his law on your hearts. You just wait, Peter. You just wait, James. You just wait, John. I have to believe that they looked at one another and said, this is what we've been waiting on. This is what he was writing about his Spirit has come to write his law on our hearts forevermore. We're not going to be in bondage any longer. We're not going to be in distress anymore. He has come one more time. Verse number 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I'll put my law in their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. And what? And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. He's quoting Jeremiah, who said that one day he's going to write that law. And nobody knew what that meant until a day in an upper room on Tikkun. On a day of sanctification, the first day of Pentecost, they came together. And all of a sudden, it started to become clear what God was saying. He wasn't going to write a literal law on parchment, and he wasn't going to take a pen and begin to inscribe. But the Spirit of God was going to come and dwell inside his people forever. Their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest blood of Jesus by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. I believe when those disciples were sitting together in the upper room, they began to think about that crucifixion. They began to think about what it meant. Why did he have to die? Why did he have to be buried? Why did he have to rise again? And then all of a sudden, the room began to shake. And all of a sudden, the room began to, it began to move and fire began to come down. And all of a sudden, it began to make sense that we have access. We've been delivered. He's, been, he's given us access. We're, we're saved. He did it. What he said he would do, he did it. What he promised us he would do, he did it. He's not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man, but he's God manifest in the flesh. He came to deliver his people. I was talking with a man this week. I cannot imagine knowing this truth and thinking that my Savior was any other but the Lord of heaven. You see, no man was worthy, sister worthy. No man was worthy. No man could do it. 
I refuse to believe that God sent somebody to do what he wasn't willing to do himself. But he said, I'm going to step into time. I'm going to become manifested unto my people. To wit, this is the mystery of godliness. The writer said it like this. Great is the mystery of godliness. It's a great mystery. I don't pretend to understand it. He said to the Jews, it's an offense. To the Greeks, it's a stumbling block. I understand that it's a mystery. But when you get the revelation of who he is, But when you get the revelation of what he really did on that cross, that God did not send somebody else to do what he was not willing to do, but he said, I'm going to step into time. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached among the Gentiles. He was believed on in the world. And that same God was received up into glory. If you want to know who Jesus is, look to the ascension. Look to the one who was received up into glory and say, that's my God. Come to be my salvation. That's the God that Jeremiah wrote about. That's the one who said he would deliver me. That's the one who said he would write his law upon my heart. That's the one who's come to live inside of me. We've robbed this world when we preach any other Jesus. We rob the lost when we preach Jesus just a man. We rob the lost and the dying when we preach Jesus as just your best friend. We rob this present world of redemption when we refuse to tell them that the God who wrote the law on tablets of stone became salvation himself. The God who thought enough of us, you see, that's where they've missed it. These people who want to let go of the truth that God was manifest in the flesh. It seems so foolish to me, but it's happened in every generation. That's where they've missed it. That God did not send somebody because he wasn't willing. God did not just tell somebody, you do it for me because I don't want to do it. Neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name. Stop. There is no other name. I'll say it one more time. There is no other name. There is one name. His name is God with us. His name is Emmanuel. His name is my Redeemer. His name is my salvation. His name is the rock that's higher than I. His name is the rose of Sharon. His name is a bush that will not be consumed. His name is Melchizedek, Prince in Salem. His name is many things, but he is my God of all creation. He is the God who wrote the law on my heart. Jesus was not another. Jesus is not another. Isaiah said it this way. Beside me there is no savior. Beside me there is none else. Beside me you don't have access. Without me you're condemned. Jesus looks at the Pharisees, and they begin to wonder the same question many people are wondering today. Who is he? And he looks at them and he says, before Abraham was? He didn't say before Abraham was, I was. He didn't say before Abraham was, we were. He said before Abraham was, I am. In other words, I am the first and I am the last. 
I am the Alpha and I am the Omega. I am the beginning and I'm the ending. I'm the one who was dead and I'm the one who is risen. And by the way, he's alive forevermore and he's living on the inside of you if you've been baptized in his name, if you've received his spirit. There's no other name. There's no other one living on the inside of you, but it's the God of all creation. The, Je the one that Jeremiah wrote about that said, I'm going to write my law upon their hearts. I'm going to redeem them one more time. I'm going to come and dwell with them one more time. If you believe that, why don't you stand with me as I'm closing. This Pentecost Sunday, it is not just a time that we come together to shout. It is not just a time we come together and celebrate that we're Pentecostals. It is not a time that we come together and think about Azusa Street or Topeka, Kansas. It's not a time we come together and talk about how we talk in tongues and they don't. That is not what Pentecost is about. Pentecost. This is the time when we remember that the God of all creation thought enough of us to dwell inside of us. See, that's not settling in with some of you. The God of all creation, the one who made the heavens and the earth by the spoken word, thought enough of you to dwell on the inside of you to say, I will be their people, and I will be their God, and they will be my people, that they will be the temple of the Holy Ghost, that I'm going to live on the inside of them. Colossians is speaking of Jesus. It says, by him were all things created whether they be thrones or principalities or powers. By him all things consist. All things were made by him and for him. Tell me, who is he talking about? Either there was two in creation, or the God of all creation thought enough of me to become obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Are you hearing me? That the God of all creation thought enough of you. The God of all creation loved you enough to say, I'm going to take the ones who were not a people and I'm going to make them my people. I'm going to take the ones who are lost in the wilderness. I'm going to take the ones who have come out of Egypt and I'm going to make them my people one more time. I'm going to bring them together only this time. I'm not going to write it this time on stone. I'm not going to write it on parchment. I'm going to come and live on the inside of them. Saying to God, you want to know what the Holy Ghost is? It's the law of God written on your heart. It's his word forever abiding in you. You want to know why you need the Holy Ghost to be saved? It's not just about talking in tongues. That's the only sign that you've received it. But that's not what it's about. On the day of Pentecost, Peter's stepped out of the upper room and people begin to gather and say, are they drunk? People still ask that question. Are they drunk? What's wrong with them? Peter begins to look at them. You know what he says? This is that. Somebody's going to get it in a second. I got asked one time in Bible school, what did Peter preach on the day of Pentecost? Now, a lot of people jump right to Acts 2.38. They go right for the throat. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the mission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. If you're not a Pentecostal and you can't quote that in less than two seconds, you're not a Pentecostal. I mean, it's burned into our hearts. We know Acts 2.38. But I got thinking about it. There's 37 verses before that. You see, Acts 2.38 was the response to a message. 
It was not the message. Acts 2.38 was an act of obedience to a word that the Bible says pricked their hearts. What was that word? And then I begin to think about it. Peter says, begins to talk about the Jesus who he walked with for three and a half years. He begins to tell him how he healed the sick. He opened deaf ears, opened blinded eyes, raised the dead. And, and he looks at him. He says, let the whole house of Israel know this. He says, let them all know this right here. The same Jesus whom you've crucified. God hath made him both Lord and Christ. What does that mean? It means he's the father and he's the son. It means he's the king and he's the prince. It means he's the Lord and he's your servant. Now let that sink in for just a minute that the Lord of all creation served you. The Lord of all creation thought enough of you to wash your feet. The God of all creation said, if you want to know how to be one of mine, learn how to be a servant like I'm being right now. The God who did not have to die, robed himself in flesh and died for you. Said he became both Lord and Christ. And then when they heard this, then when they heard this, you want to know what you need to be preaching to a lost and dying world? Listen, I I love Acts 2.38 and I believe it's the only way. But before you ever tell them about Acts 2.38, Before you ever tell them to repent, you better tell them who Jesus is. Before you ever tell them to be baptized, you better tell them who Jesus is. It's not just a a formula that we use for eternity. It's not just, well, you got to come to church and you got to repent of your sins and be baptized in Jesus' name. No, that is not the message. The message is the God of all creation robed himself in flesh and he died on a cross for you. And when he died on a cross, he rose on the third day and he rose so that you could rise again. You want to know how to reach a lost and dying world? Tell them who Jesus is. Tell them that the God who created all things loved you enough to become like you. He loved you enough to become tempted like every man that you're tempted. Brother Fry said it this morning. You know, Jesus is walking with Mary and Martha. Lazarus has died. And I believe that by the spoken word, he could have raised Lazarus at any time. He was God in flesh. He could have resurrected Lazarus at any point. But he chose to weep instead. He waits four days and weeps with Mary and Martha. Why? Saying to God, because he's your burden bearer. Because he was afflicted like you're afflicted. Because he suffered like you suffered. When you're in distress and you don't know why, you don't have answers, can I tell you that Jesus felt the exact same way and he felt it on your behalf? That when you are crying, he's crying with you. That when you're in pain, he's in pain with you. That he bore your burdens and he thought enough of you to say, I'll become like they are. I'll become their servant so I can be their Lord. I'll become their servant so I can step in and save them. This is not just a day to talk about Pentecostalism. It's not just a day to talk about a denomination. It's not a day to talk about a movement. This is a day to remember who Jesus really is. That he is not another. He is the God of all creation. Manifested in the flesh. 
Romans said it like this, to wit that God was in Christ. Reconciling the world, not unto his son. To wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. If you're thankful for that, why don't you begin to raise your hands and pray this with me. These altars are open. You know me, I don't, I don't give a big altar call. God, I want this day to be a time, God, for me to consider what you did for me on that cross. God, that you made yourself like I am. You took on the form of a servant. God, when you didn't have to become a servant, you became a servant. God, that you died for me, and when you rose again, you didn't just leave me there. God, you filled me with your spirit and you wrote your law upon my heart. God, you wrote your law upon my heart so I could be more like you. God, you wrote your law upon my heart so I could be with you one day. God, so that I could share an eternity with you. God, that I could dwell with you one day. I'm so thankful.